I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everybody in London. Good lunchtime to me in the US. We have people joining us from across the world. And thank you, everybody, for joining. I, I can see a lot of people have in the chat. I was reminded yesterday, accidentally, that this is the um, second week of the war. It feels like one very long, very dreadful day. I don't believe two weeks have passed, partly because where I live in Washington, D.C., I was assured by every self-confident military analyst that this war would last a couple of days because Russia would crush Ukraine. Something very different is happening. Um, Ukraine is fighting back in ways that nobody really expected if they didn't know Ukraine. But as I know Ukraine and I'm Ukrainian and everybody's today knows or is Ukrainian, maybe we're a bit less surprised about how this is playing out. But there is a huge humanitarian catastrophe happening. And today's event, which will be with some fantastic authors I'm about to introduce, has a very clear humanitarian mission where raising money for the Pirogov first volunteer mobile hospital which is the writer Andrei Kurkov's choice of recipient. That's where your donations are being sent. We've already raised £12,000. Every penny really matters. You all see the humanitarian catastrophe, which is playing out in Ukraine, playing out purposefully. Civilians are being targeted on purpose. It's a time-tested Russian military strategy. None of this is accidental. And every little bit makes a huge, huge difference. Today's guests are all, are all phenomenal, and I'm very honored to be there. We're presenting them. Uh, my name is Peter Pomerantsev. I'm a Ukrainian-born, British-American-based author and academic these days as well. And joining me is Andrei Kurkov, who is one of the great contemporary Ukrainian novelists, I'm sure you know, and have been following his work all the way from his great Penguin books through to his more recent B's book about life in the war zone. James Meek, who reported from Kiev and in, in, I think from the, for the Guardian many, many years ago before becoming the LRB's really great writer on Russia, Eastern Europe, and especially Ukraine, and has just been reporting for the LRB from Kiev. He only just returned. Also, of course, a fantastic novelist. Then we have, and I hope I get the pronunciation right. It'll be so embarrassing if I, I get it wrong. Luba Yakimchuk, a poet, a playwright, a screenwriter. Her most recent poetry collection is Apricots of Donbass. She's won many prestigious awards, the International Slavic Poetic Award, the Poetic Award of the Kobalyov Foundation. And she's from Luhansk in uh, the east of Ukraine and now lives in Kiev. And then also we're going to have readings from the absolutely unique, inimitable and living legend Ilya Kaminsky, Soviet-born, Ukrainian, Jewish, Odessa, an American poet, critic, 
translator, I mean, one of the great literary phenomena of our age, best known for his multi-award winning poetry collections, Dancing in Odessa and Deaf Republic, and Robert Chandler, the poet and translator, who I think really is someone who has reintroduced so much of Russian and Ukrainian literature to an English audience and is really this incredible bridge between Russian and Ukrainian literature into English, a bridge that all of us cross over every day. So look, this is all about readings today and, and it's all about wonderful writing as well as war and saving lives. So I'm gonna start by turning to Andrei, if you could uh, start our first reading well, thank you very much. I'm very happy that so many British and not only British uh, people in the audience joined us tonight. Any support, any help is extremely valued and extremely important for Ukraine at that time. Uh, I mean, I, I have been watching the news uh, every half hour to see what is happening in my beloved country. And uh, I, I will read a very short piece from chapter number six from the book, The Grey Bees, the book about two inhabitants of uh, the grey zone, uh, which is uh, the territory between positions of warring sides, where still many people live even today, because grey zone in Ukraine has the same length as the front line. Before Russian aggression, it was 430 kilometers, now we don't have to measure the front lines because they are everywhere. They have different forms. They are around big cities, around Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kiev. But uh, I'm sure that uh, Ukraine will resist and will survive and will defend itself and we will have life without gray zones and without front lines sooner rather than later. And uh, here is a short piece from the novel Grey Bees. After several calm, windless days came an unusual dark evening. It didn't come of its own accord, but was brought about by the agitation of the sky, which was invisible from the wintry gloom below. Up there, heavy cloud pushed aside their lighter neighbors and began to shed fluffy snow. These new flakes fell to the ground, which was plastered with old snow that had grown hard in the dry wind. Sergei, yawning, fed his stove a new portion of long flame coal, then pinched out a yellow church candle with two fingers. It seemed he had done what had to be done before bedtime. All that remained was to pull the blanket up to his ears and fall asleep until the morning or until the cold woke him. Yet the silence, thanks to the snowfall, felt somehow incomplete. And when silence is incomplete, there arises willy-nilly the desire to complete it. But how? Sergeich had long ago grown used to the sound of distant bombardments which had become an integral part of silence. But now the snowfall, a much less frequent guest, had blocked out that sound with its rustling. Silence, of course, is an arbitrary thing, a personal oral phenomena that people adjust for themselves. In earlier days, Sergei's silence was not unlike the silence of others, 
it easily absorbed the drone of an airplane up in the sky or the nighttime chirp of a cricket that had hoped in through an open window. All quiet sounds that cause no irritation and don't turn one's head eventually fuse into silence. So it was with Sergei peacetime silence, and so it became with his wartime silence in which military sounds suppressed and displaced peaceful, natural ones, but in due course also nestled under the wings of silence, insist to draw attention to themselves. Now Sergei lay in bed, seized by a strange anxiety because of the snowfall, which seemed too loud. Instead of drifting off to sleep, he lay there and thought. And once again his thoughts returned to the dead man in the field. But this time Sergei's thoughts hastened to bring him cheer, suggesting that the dead man would soon be hidden from view. After all, snow as heavy as this would cover everything up for a good long time until the springtime thaw. And in spring, all would change. Nature would awake, birds' song would drown out the cannon fire, because the birds would be nearby while the cannons would stay over there far away. And only occasionally, for some unknown reason, maybe out of drunkenness or drowsiness, would the gunners accidentally drop one or two shells on little Starogradivka, once a month at most. And these shells would fall where nothing living remained, on the cemetery, the churchyard, or the long deserted and windowless building of the old Kalhos administration. And if the war did continue into spring, Sergei would leave the village to Pashka and take his bees, all six hives, to where there was no war, where the fields went pockmarked by craters, but covered in buckwheat or wildflowers, where you could walk without fear through woods, across meadows and along country roads, where there were lots of people, and even if they didn't smile at you, life would still seem easier and warmer simply because there were so many of them. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen on your journey to to England now? Because in your book you describe the east of the country, the grey zone, where Putin has been waging his war since 2014, but now you've passed through a greater war zone. Can you tell us what you've seen and what the latest is? Well, our experience probably repeats experience of millions of Ukrainians. We uh, had to leave Kyiv with my family, with our kids. Well, not with kids, actually. Kids were in Lviv at that time. They went one day before the war. They went for a long weekend to uh, enjoy cafes and old streets of ancient Lviv. But we were in Kyiv, and we were woken up at 5 o'clock in the morning by three explosions. and uh, Time elapsed very quickly because then at 6 a.m. there were more explosions and I was still looking out of the windows and suddenly I saw two ladies walking their dogs, but there were no cars, which are so frequent at that time. And uh, next night we spent with our friend 
British writer and journalist who lived in Kiev for many, many years, Lily Haidt, and who wrote wonderful books about Crimean Tatars. As I know, she is now in Prague. And uh, then, actually, this silence after explosions, uh, it was very tense. And uh, we decided to go to our countryside house, which is 60 miles away to the west. And uh, we told about this our friend, Lena, who is a music teacher, and she wanted to join us with her son. So we just started our journey to the village, and uh, Kiev streets were empty at that time. But when we got to exit of the city, there were already traffic jams 20, 30 miles long. And uh, I mean, I can count the hours we were standing and driving, and at some point, actually, a missile or something flew over our car. Then two Ukrainian fighter jets flew very low also uh, over our car, and the vibration was incredible. And we were standing in a traffic jam, and then we moved slowly, and then stopped again, and we were listening to uh, very loud explosions and gunfire on the right from Gostomil's side. And Gostomil is a wonderful small town, practically a suburb of Kiev. And uh, I think the explosions are going on there until today because uh, even our neighbors in the village, which is 40 kilometers, 30 miles from there, they can hear the fighting going on. And it took us then uh, 22 hours to drive from our village to Lviv. And at some point I was falling asleep while driving because there were some moments when there were no traffic jams and I stopped, slept for two hours, and then we managed to enter Lviv in the morning. And we found our sons and daughter and had some rest. Uh, I, I want to say that actually uh, I saw number plates of all cities of Ukraine in the traffic jam. Uh, among others, there were number plates of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, which means that the people who were driving to the west, they were already for the second time refugees. First, they left Donbass to settle in Vinitsa, in Dnipro, in Kiev, and now they were going further west again. It's strange because I didn't feel any fear. I had anxiety in Kiev, and then I was just uh, set for driving as far as possible from Kiev, from central Ukraine to the western Ukraine. And, uh, well, in the place where we are living now, I should say that actually refugees are very welcomed by Ukrainians in the western part, and they are all given rooms or hostels or university campuses. And we were lucky because we got a, a small flat from a, an older lady, Russian-speaking lady, who uh, went uh, to live with her daughter. And uh, she left us the fridge with food, although we didn't ask for it. And I was uh, looking at her bookshelves, and all the books there were Soviet editions, including uh, Ukrainian classical literature in Russian translation. And uh, it was like uh, visiting my late parents, because, I mean, they had the same kind of Soviet apartment with all the traditional books on the bookshelves, uh, with all the strange Soviet uh, kitchen utensils that you cannot buy anymore with gas stove with uh, only where only half of the the gas lighters work but uh, we are very grateful and uh, it's it's strange i mean when people say that uh, we are also refugees yes we are refugees but uh, i mean somehow 
I don't feel because I always thought that refugees are those who who are ignored, who are forgotten, who are defended only by United Nations during discussions in New York. Uh, but uh, here, Ukrainian refugees, I mean, of course, I mean, to leave everything behind. And uh, I'm thinking already several days that I went from left home in Kiev without taking a single book. And my wife took Bible and uh, one of my latest novels because she didn't read it. But she reads now only Bible. She doesn't read my novel that she took. <laughs> I think that would be a, you know, I think we all should talk about that as we introduce our reading and our work today. What is the, what are the two books that you will take if you are forced to flee your home in mortal danger? I look forward to James and Luba's contribution. I probably have to move on to the next reading, even though I have so many questions to ask. Maybe we can come back to them later and maybe we can all think about it. I mean, Andre, do you ever stop being a writer? You, know, you just said you felt you'd become a refugee. Obviously, you were fleeing. But the way you describe this with such incredible detail, is a bit of your brain also thinking how you will write it? Or, or is that just a professional? Just That's just a professional novel. You just do that anyway. Just take careful notes. Uh no, I, 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 the, the thing is that, I, I mean, I have been uh, writing several articles for several countries about our escape. And while writing, I was uh, recollecting the details that I forgot. And actually, when you write and you talk about this, you remember more and you remember more vividly everything you experienced. I mean, probably this is how the books which describe, I mean, like a novel which is describes only one day, this is how this novel can be written. So you have to re rewrite and relive the same moment many times, and then it becomes bigger and bigger, and the number of details and, and elements that are added every time is enlarging the story. I should introduce the next reading. We can talk on and on. And I'd like to say that Andre's latest book is the book of the week at the LRB bookshop, and part of the reason really we're all here is, is his relationship with the LRB. So the next reading is a recorded one from Ilya Kaminsky, who I think is based in New York these days, but is really me always in Odessa. Odessa, I've just spoken to my friends there. Very funny. I mean, Odessa, as you all know, is a, is a town of uh, incredible diversity, of many feuds as well. And I just spoke to my friends there. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, everyone, the right wing, the left wing, the LGBT community, the gangsters, everyone's coming together for the great defense of the city and, and also the army. But um, Ilya's reading is recorded for us. Author's prayer. If I speak for the dead, I must leave this animal off my body. I must write the same poem over and over for an empty page the white flag of their surrender. If I speak for them, I must walk on the edge of myself. I must live at a blind man who runs through the rooms without touching the furniture. Yes, I live. I can cross the streets asking what is it. I can dance in my sleep and laugh in front of the mirror. Even sleep is a prayer, Lord. I will praise your madness and in a language not mine. Speak of music that wakes us, music in which we move. For whatever I say is a kind of petition. 
and darkest days must I praise. We lived happily during the war. We lived happily during the war. And once they bombed other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was fallen. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In a six month of a disastrous rain, in a house of money, in a street of money, in a sea of money in a country of money our great country of money we for divas lived happily during the war poem bombardment my body runs in a loam of street, my clothes in a pillowcase. I look for a man who looks exactly like me to give him my Sonia, my name, my shirt. It has begun. Neighbors climb the trolleys at the fish market, break it all the moments in half. Trolleys burst like intestines in the sun. Pavel shot, I'm so fucking beautiful, I cannot stand it. Two boys still holding tomato sandwiches, happening in trolleys light. Soldiers same as their faces, their ears. I can't find my wife, where is my pregnant wife? I, a body, an adult male of it, to explode like a hand-grenade. It has begun. I saw the blue canary of my country. Big bread crumbs from each citizen size. Big bread crumbs from my neighbor's hair. The snow loves the earth and falls straight up as it should. To have a country so important to run into walls, into streetlights, into loved ones as one should. I saw the blue canary of my country early on in the walls, in the streetlights, in the loved ones. I saw the blue canary of my country watch their legs as they run and fall. Dancing. North of the future, they open it letters with a child's signature, a raspberry, a page of sky. 
She pulled imagination like a blanket over my head. I painted my mother's face. She understood loneliness, hid the dead on the earth like partisans. The night undressed us. I counted its posts. My mother danced, she filled the past with speeches, casseroles. This my doctor laughed at his granddaughter, touched my eyelid, I kissed the back of her knee. The city trembled, a horse ship set in sail, and my classmate invented twenty names for you. He was an angel, he had no name. We restless, yes. My grandfather's fought the German pants and tractors. I kept a suitcase full of broadsteers poems. The city trembled. A horse ship set in sail. At night, I walked to wish, but yes, we lived. We lived, yes, don't say it was a dream. At the local factory, my father took a handful of snow, put it in my mouth. The sun began a routine narration, waiting in their bodies, mother, father, dancing, moving as a darkness spoke behind them. It was April. The sun washed the balconies, April. I retell the story, the light edges into my hand. Little book, go to the city without me. As you go out, watch. Vasenka citizens do not know they are evidence of happiness. In a time of war, each their lip document of love. Watch God, they have something to tell that not even they can hear. Grand Baruch, in the center square of this bombed out city, you will see one neighbor sips a cigarette, another gives a dog a pint of sunlit beer. You will find me, God, like a damn pigeon's beak. I am packing every which way at astonishment. Just to be clear, for those who don't know, I mean, those are poems from 2004 and from 2019. Luba, let's chat a little bit before your reading, catch a breath between poetry. You're from Luhansk originally, and the war has been part of, I assume, part of your reality in a very intimate way for a while. For those in the audience who don't know much about you, can you just tell us about where you're from and, and about your writing? Okay. I will read from this book, Apricots of Donbass, which was translated into English by Oksana Maksimchuk, Max Rosachinsky, and Svetlana Lavochkina. 
So it uh, was about my experience of war, which started eight years ago, not just now, you know, that, that now we have the just massive aggression of Russia, but in uh, 2014, we had the start of uh, uh, Russian and Ukrainian war. So it, it is about my experience and uh, my parents, my sister's experience as well. And um, I will read you two poems from this book. First of them, it's decomposition. Nothing changes on the Eastern Front. Well, I've had it up to here. At the moment of death, metal gets hot and people get cold. Don't talk me about Luhansk. It's long since turned into Hansk. Luh had been raised to the ground, to the crimson pavement. My friends are held hostage and I can't reach them. I can't do Netsk to pull them out of the basements from under the rubble. Yet here you are, writing poems, ideally smooth poems, high-minded gilded poems, beautiful as embroidery. There is no poetry about war, just decomposition. Only letters remain, and they all make a single sound. Pervomysk has been split into Peru and Maisk, into particles in primeval flux. War is over again, yet peace has not come. And where is my Deb Alts Evo? No poet will, will be born there again, no human being. I stare into the horizon, it has narrowed into a triangle. Sunflowers dip their heads in the field, black and dried out like me. I have gotten so very old, no longer Luba, just Eba. And one more poem, Knife. With relatives we share tables and graves, with enemies only graves. One such candidate comes to share a grave with me, says to me, I'm bigger than you, I'm harder than you, I'm tougher than you. Sticks knife after knife into my stomach and below, knife after knife. His precious spring like, but he's smaller than us, he's softer than us, because he's only got one knife, and there are plenty of us at the table and each has their own butt, and each has their own cut, says to me, I am a sharper blade cut you, I am a thicker blade cut you, chip chop, chip chop, the last one is dead, hold on, they say, hold on, and we hold onto our table from the gun muzzle, we all drink our bullets, we pour our enemy one, two, Thank you for attention. Before we came on, you were saying that you're you're in Paris now. You're heading to Edinburgh, and then you plan to head back to Kiev. Yeah, I have this uh, plan. Um, I have um, an evening here tomorrow, uh, and uh, then I have an evening in Warsaw, and then I'm uh, coming uh, back to Kiev through Lviv, actually, and. Um, I believe uh, um, 
when I need to do it. I have family in Ukraine, in uh, Lviv. Uh, uh, now is my son and my husband in, in Kyiv. And uh, my husband is volunteering. Uh, he drives uh, from Kyiv to Kharkiv and back. Uh, he uh, delivers uh, humanitarian aids for Ukrainian defense uh, unit and uh, for child as well. And uh, some medicines uh, and so on. Uh, so uh, me before this uh, trip, this, this literature journey, I also volunteered, like a fixer maybe. To I, I connected uh, people which are in Nazi and uh, uh, found everything of which uh, people need. Uh, so um, uh, my plan is like this. And have they asked you to bring something back? I don't know, humanitarian aid or, or something from your tour? What do people need the most at the moment? I'm going um, I'm going to buy uh, walkie-talkies in uh, Warsaw because uh, we haven't any in uh, Kyiv, in Lviv now. And uh, uh, Kharkiv asked, uh, people in Kharkiv asked us uh, to bring them to them. Also, I'm looking for tourniquets uh, to stop the bleed. Uh, and um, I'm going to cross the border by my food because it's uh, it isn't so long as uh, if I were in uh, a car or in a bus. But I'm hoping to do my utmost and uh, to bring this for Ukrainians. Yeah. How old is your son? Uh, my son is in leave with relatives with uh, his aunt. If uh, then, um, you know. Well, anything, anything that you think that uh, we should be spending, then, then um, maybe we can help articulate that in our, in our fundraiser. No. Yeah, it's Sorry. not maybe maybe the connection is an ideal. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for the reading. Yeah. We have another recorded reading now, who I seem to have known all my life, and whose translations of. of of Russian-Ukrainian writers into English is so important, I think, for many people to understand to understand uh, Russian and Ukrainian literature. I think he's recorded something from us, which the, uh, the man behind the curtain will now press play. Tefi is a pseudonym by which people always refer to a very, very great Russian woman writer who was um, immensely popular before the revolution. I mean, a real superstar. And she was hugely popular in the world, the Russian emigre world, during the 20s and 30s. After her death, like many other emigres, after her death, she got rather forgotten for several decades. And she's been rediscovered in the last 20 or 30 years. And she wrote plays and poetry, but she's... Her best work is her short stories. The memoir, which I'm going to read from in a moment, called Memories, that's been translated into a great many languages during the last 10 years. This is the American edition, and um, this is the UK edition published by the Pushkin Press. This memoir is from late 96 months, late 1918, early 1919. It's Tethy's last six months in Russia and Ukraine. She spends a lot of it is set in Kiev and Odessa, 
that I'm moving goodbyes to both those cities in memories. But I'm going to read from the very last page where she's um, getting on the boat that will eventually take her to Istanbul and then eventually to, she'll be going to Western Europe. Our last hours on the quayside, beside the steamer, the Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich. Hustle, bustle, much whispering. The strange whispering that along with a constant looking back over the shoulder had accompanied all our arrivals and departures as we slid down the map, down the huge green map, across which, slantwise, was written the Russian Empire. Yes, everyone is whispering, everyone is looking back over their shoulder. Everyone is frightened, constantly frightened, and not until their dying day will they come to their senses, will they find peace. Amen. The steamer shudders, whipping up white foam with its propeller, spreading black smoke over the shoreline. And slowly, softly, the land slips away from us. Don't look at it. You must look ahead into the wide, free expanse of blue. But somehow the head turns back. Eyes are opening wide and they keep looking, looking. And everyone is silent, except for one woman. From the lower deck comes the sound of long, obstinate wails, interspersed with words of lament. Where have I heard such wails before? Yes, I remember during the first year of the war. A grey-haired old woman was being taken down the street in a horse-drawn cab. Her hat had slipped back onto the nape of her neck. Her yellow cheeks were thin and drawn. Her toothless black mouth was hanging open, crying out in a long, tearless wail. Ah! Probably embarrassed by the disgraceful behaviour of his passenger, the driver was urging his poor horse forward, whipping her on. Yes, my good man, you didn't think enough about whom you were picking up in your cab, and now you're stuck with this old woman, a terrible, black, tearless wail, a last wail, over all of Russia, the whole of Russia, no stopping now. The steamer shudders, spreading up black smoke. With my eyes now open so wide that the cold penetrates inside them, I keep on looking, and I shall not move away. I've broken my vow, I've looked back, and like Lot's wife, I'm frozen. I've turned into a pillar of salt forever, and I shall forever go on looking, seeing my own land slip softly, slowly, away from me. Part of the depth of that passage comes from Tefi's recognition that there are things deeper and beyond language. Um, I've read other accounts of scenes like that, of people saying goodbye to their country, and um, others seem very, in comparison, rather facile. Tefi realises that words aren't enough, that only this black, tearless wail can really convey the depth of what has happened. I did hesitate as to whether it was appropriate on this evening to 
be reading a, a Russian writer saying goodbye to what is actually a Russian port city rather than Ukraine. But um, firstly, Tefis is the most moving of any refugee memoirs that I know. And secondly, that kind of wail over the whole of Russia just seems entirely, almost more than ever, appropriate today. What Russia is doing to Ukraine is terrible, but in, I think I can imagine Ukraine recovering more easily from the damage being done to it than um, it's very hard to imagine Russia recovering from the damage it's inflicting on itself at present. There's Tefi's amazing memoirs and the memoirs of other people who are part of this sort of last wave of white Russian refugees from across the Russian Empire at that time. Even Crimea, there was this whole flotilla of ships that left carrying really a whole civilization on it. Philosophers, writers, there was even a brothel on one of the ships. There were cabarets. It was a whole kind of civilization leaving the Russia of the time and heading to Istanbul and then Paris and a lot of my time in Russia as well. And I'm very connected to it. And of course, most of my friends are among those who are horrified, appalled by what Russian leadership is doing. And most of them are leaving, driving to the border to Estonia, or many of them to Istanbul, sometimes via Yerevan, following the journey that Tefi and her and her fellow refugees made. And they're in shock. Uh, among the most strongest opponents of this war, and, and many Russians are. James, I'm turning to you this time as a journalist, even though you're one of my favorite novelists, but you wear so many hats. And your journalism has always been, I think, unique in England because you originally reported on the Soviet and post-Soviet space from Kiev, giving this sort of really necessary perspective. I was always very saddened that Kiev was always covered by the Moscow correspondent. I always felt that was wrong in many ways. And so you always had this wonderful in-country vision, and you've just been back to the LRB. And can you just tell us what you saw? And, and you wrote about this anticipation of war or the potential of war or the not knowing. So tell us about your time there and, and, and what you're seeing since then. Well, in some ways, I, I feel terrible because um, I, I left the day before it all began, um, even anticipating, I think, more than quite a few people in Kiev anticipated that this was really going to happen, that Russia was, was serious this time and it, it wasn't just going to be an incursion into Donbass. Uh, and so my, my last day in Kiev was, was it the 23rd of February, the, the last normal day, um, and, and the, the, the most uh, boring, banal, tedious sort of departure on an Uber to the airport uh, where I caught, as it turns out, the last Ryanair flight out of Ukraine and landed at Stansted three hours later. And then a few hours later, airspace was closed. So I, I had this, this strange week there, not having been back for a very long time. So I was seeing a city changed from all the various iterations that I had seen from then, the immediate pre independence period in, in late 1991, the, the very difficult times of, um, of independence in the, 
1992 and 93, the hyperinflation, the shortages, um, the collapse of, of many basic services. And then uh, regular, I, I lived there for two and a half years. I left, um, but I kept coming back and seeing how gradually two steps forward, one steps back, the, the country was finding its way, as it seemed. So in a way, one of the reasons I'm kind of getting over my guilt of, of leaving the day before it all began is, is just this, this idea that I carry with me this, this memory of, of a, a place that was completely at peace and carrying on and, and, and doing its thing. One of the, the, the difficulties that I've, I've found since the war itself began is this, this very concept of letting Ukraine be enveloped by the idea of war, accepting that, that war has taken over Ukraine. It's a kind of mental leap that we make. And I have made many times in the past, in the other wars I've covered, um, in Chechnya, in Abkhazia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. When I look back, I think I've been always too ready to accept that a state of war has encompassed a place. And therefore, anything that happens in that space is somehow not permitted, but it's, it's a little bit more normal because it's war. And I feel now very inclined in this situation to strongly mentally resist this idea, not just uh, mentally and, and actively in whatever small way I can resist what Russia is doing, but to resist the very idea that this deserves the concept of war. I would much rather break down all these hundreds, these thousands of horrific incidents as crime after crime after crime, as murder after murder after murder. No matter whether it's a thousand people, 10,000 shells, a hundred thousand incidents, that is what it is. It is that many crimes. And once we cast this veil of war, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a convenient expression and we can't get away from it when we're talking about it. But I think we still have to resist the idea that this is not a crime, not that there are war crimes within a war, but that all war is, is a crime. And the way that this, this horror has been visited on this essentially peaceful country, it's almost like um, when, when we, we try and come to think about it in our imagination, I, I think you, you have to go back to our efforts to, uh, in, in Western Europe, sort of retrospectively justify um, uh, or, or imagine our conquest, our imperial conquest of, of other countries in the form of science fiction depictions of alien invasions of a, a monstrous race that lands and begins um, wiping out for no apparent reason peaceful cities and, and, uh, and innocent lives. Um, I, I, I feel that we just have to resist this, this idea of, um, okay, Ukraine is, is captured by war. I'm going to bring Andre and Luba in because that's such a, there's so many aspects to that. So if I understand you right, you mean that once we blanket everything with war, then sort of actually weirdly crimes become easier to bear. So, well, it's a war. Of course, a hospital will be hit. Is that is that what you mean? That exactly. by framing it as war, you actually make the crimes more acceptable. Exactly, exactly. And and in a strange kind of way, and I I felt this particularly strongly 
perhaps more subconsciously than consciously when I was in Afghanistan, that it was as if war was a natural thing there, that it kind of bubbled up out of the ground. And that once you see a street with a charred tank in it and a house ruined and the belongings scattered all over the, the irrigation ditches, then this somehow retrospectively makes this a kind of a natural thing. And uh, rather than a road accident where all around the road accident, everything is normal and there's just this tiny little concentration of, um, of disaster in the middle of it. Somehow, because it's on such a large scale and there are so many incidents, you come to think against any uh, fundamental sense that this is somehow, it was always there. It was always waiting that war is somehow natural. Uh, and, and that, I feel, is, is what we outside Ukraine uh, must vigorously resist. But I'd love to bring Luba Andre in because, well, firstly, there has been a war since 2014. Secondly, there's the flip side of this, which is it's in Russia at the moment for using the word war. But how do you feel it's so important, of course, the language that we use then resists the acceptance of war crimes. But I wonder how we find a way out because, you know, we have an adversary who also wants to resist this language for his own reason. Andre, do you have any thoughts on that? What is the linguistic way to both hold this to account and yet not give in to a sort of moral wasteland? Well, I, I think every war provokes the language to react in a more direct way. And uh, with every war, we have a special vocabulary switched on. And uh, also, I mean, there are lots of words that disappear during the war. Uh, from the conversations and from the text. So the, the language becomes more radical on one side. And uh, on the other side, uh, the language of those who commit aggression, commit crimes, become uh, artificially soft and pretentious. So, I mean, for me, uh, this war is a, a, a double minefield. I mean, the real minefield, which will be killing people uh, many years after the war is over. But it is also mind-filled that uh, with minds planted in the heads of people uh, on both sides, because I mean, it creates a very strange uh, situation that uh, people want to ignore a lot of things during the war. And they, and they want to ignore the enemy who committed crimes after the war. And the, the enemy doesn't want, I mean, when he becomes living normal life after the war, he doesn't want to be ignored. So, I mean, we, we, we are entering a very complex situation, uh, and this is also part of the discussion that was started recently, two or three years ago, about council culture. I mean, like, uh, Ukraine has cancelled Russia already, but Russia is bombing Ukraine, so you, you cannot cancel uh, fighter jets, bombers, and cannons, and uh, you cannot counsel these Chechens and Russian soldiers which are on Ukrainian territory. So uh, the psyche is affected. I mean, people, they hate the enemy so much that they, in order to save their being sane, uh, they start actually, no, they don't see the enemy, they, they ignore the enemy. And by this, they provoke maybe even more aggression. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I am just sort of thinking uh, aloud, trying to formulate what what is difficult uh, to uh, explain. But definitely the language is affected and everybody's thoughts are affected by the war. And emotions are uh, very often stronger than logic. Luba, your poems that you read address this directly. The the attempt to communicate to others what is happening in in Luhansk. I can't remember now. Do you use the term war? Do you try to find your own images and language for it? My mind, language always reflects life, and um, uh, we know that at first people named uh, the things they saw, like cave, forest, birds, uh, then language became more satisfied, and um, language, uh, literature is a thing made from language. Uh, so, um, so it's flexible for, for language changes. And um, about my experience, I'm try. I tried to describe uh, composition of word, decomposition of Ukraine uh, territories, uh, using decomposition of language, and uh, you 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 could see it. Also, I I uh, I would like to add more interesting things uh, when. Um, on uh, February 24th, hearing a series of explosion, we with, was we with my husband jumped out of bed, and uh, through the window I saw flames across the sky, and uh, I cried, "My love, fucking shit!" And uh, uh, we started to use lots of swearing, lots of spear words uh, in our language now. And you may be know about this famous quote, Russian worship, go fuck yourself, uh, which appears uh, on electronic uh, displays now even uh, on the road from from uh, Kyiv to Kharkiv. Uh, sometimes in uh, um, uh, in uh, abbreviated version, I guess, Russian fuck yourself, for instance. And uh, also, uh, even children in bomb shelters in Kyiv, Kharkiv, uh, Chernihiv, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and Sum, and so on, uh, in our cities and towns, um, even them uh, use these varying words like Putin law or Putin as a prick uh, in English, yes, uh, from time to time, because it, it isn't taboo anymore. And uh, if um, uh, it, it looks like it's a line from a popular ch- children's poems now, and uh, I guess after war, uh, we should uh, uh, create new swearing uh, for Ukrainian language, uh, because this one. Um, now, uh, this swearing uh, works uh, to relieve our emotion, to defend yourself. If we had, uh, we could uh, uh, mention uh, Steven Pinker, for instance, Steven Pinker's, uh, Pinker's research about uh, swearing, uh, which people use to uh, defend yourself using words. Uh, and in Ukraine, we 
uh, we see this situation as well. It's uh, very interesting. Also, uh, now language demarcated language demarcated hours from aliens. In this way, um, uh, besides in this way, Ukrainian military employ uh, a linguistic examination to reveal a diversionist even. Uh, Russian are unable to pronounce words uh, that combine a hard syllable with a soft, uh, like uh, in word Palyanitsa, which they pronounce in lots of different way, ways, like Palyanitsa. Palanitsa and, uh, and so on. And uh, Russian-speaking um, Ukrainians uh, who not have such uh, phonetical issues because um, what is um, because what is called Russian language in Ukraine resembles the Russian language of Russia only lexically, phonetically and grammatically. It's uh, one of the Ukrainians' dialects. I guess uh, not only me, not just me. Uh, but uh, Ukrainian, uh, yeah, we have uh, this map of dialects in Ukraine, and uh, um, it's very interesting because uh, before this massive aggression, this uh, Polyanitsa test was like a linguistical knowledge, and now everyone in our country know about this, and and it's common knowledge now. And it's very interesting as well that lots of uh, Russian speakers in Ukraine switch, uh, switched their language from Russian into Ukrainian. It's like, I guess, third uh, wave of uh, switching. And um, we have uh, lots of uh, interesting things in language. And um, it's... Uh, its show, uh, like language, um, could reflect life, reflect war as well. Yeah, one of my one of my best friends, a Ukrainian journalist, wrote to me right at the start. Finally, the language issue makes sense to me. It's become a security issue, literally. Like you know, you know, you know who's who if they can say certain Ukrainian words or pronounce them. Um, it's become a way to to understand to secure safety. And she says, finally, finally, cause I think she was always a little bit aloof from the language debate. She was like, finally, I get why language is important. Andrei, we're going to have another another reading from you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd like to read very short first chapter from uh, Death and the Penguin, the, the book, actually, that uh, introduced me to English language audience. And uh, this is a book about Kiev in uh, the early 90s when... Uh, Life was very difficult after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Crime was on the rise. Economy was dead. And uh, I always thought that this was one of the most difficult times for Kyiv. But later I became more interested in Kyiv's history in the uh, Civil War of 1917-1921. And in 1918, uh, actually... Bolsheviks were attacking Kyiv and bombing central part of Kyiv from the western side from Svetoshin. Then Kyiv was partially destroyed in the Second World War. And uh, now uh, there is a danger of uh, having our beautiful city destroyed again by new Bolsheviks or neo-Bolsheviks, uh, the Russian army of Putin. So I have very mixed feelings also now about uh, the 
early 1990s, maybe they were not so horrible and so dangerous uh, in, in the end. They were difficult, but they were much, I would say, easier times than the times we are living now. And this is, uh, I will not explain what is this book about. You will probably understand from this ch first chapter. First, a stone landed a meter from Victor's foot. He glanced back. Two louts stood grinning, one of whom stooped, picked up another from a section of broken cobble and bowled it at him skittle fashion. Victor made off at something approaching a racing walk and rounded the corner telling himself the main thing was not to run. He paused outside his block, glancing up at the hanging clock. 9 p.m. Not a sound, not one about. He went in, now no longer afraid. They found life dull, ordinary people. Now that entertainment was beyond their means, so they bowed cobbles. As he turned on, turned on the kitchen light, it went off again. They had cut the power, just like that. And in the darkness he became aware of the unhurried footfalls of Misha the penguin. Misha had appeared Chez Victor a year before when the zoo was giving hungry animals away to anyone able to feed them. Victor had gone along and returned with the king penguin. Abandoned by his girlfriend the week before, he had been feeling lonely. But Misha had brought his own kind of loneliness, and the result was now two complementary loneliness, creating an impression more of interdependence than of amity. Unearthing a candle, he lit it and stood it on the table in an empty mayonnaise pot. The poetic instructions of the tiny light sent him to look in the semi-darkness for pen and paper. He sat down at the table with the paper between him and the candle. Paper asking to be written on. Had he been a poet, rhyme would have raced across the white. But he wasn't. He was trapped in a rut between journalism and meagre scraps of prose. Short stories were the best he could do, very short, too short to make a living from, even if he got paid for them. A shot rang out. Darting to the window, Victor pressed his face to the glass. Nothing. He returned to his sheet of paper. Already he had thought up a story around this, that shot. A single side was all it took no more, no less. And as his latest short story drew to its tragic close, the power came back on and the ceiling bulb blazed. Blowing out the candle, he fetched coldly from the freezer for Misha's bowel. Thank you, Raj. We've been, we've been talking about words and words so important. But I want to talk about actions a bit as well. I recently 
Well, most of my work at, at Johns Hopkins University is to do with trying to understand audiences better in, in different countries, so to create better journalism for them. But most, most of my work is in Ukraine. For the last four years, I've been doing nonstop polling, focus groups, working with Ukrainian journalists to try to try to understand people and to create journalism that is good for democracy or something. But the reason I say this is, is been this incredible journey for me to try to understand Ukrainian identity, behavior. And one of the things that, that came out very strongly was when we asked Ukrainians, what are you proud of and where do you, when do you feel pride? Something that came up over and over and over again to an extent that I didn't expect was we feel pride when people see us outside of the country. Maybe that's when we all feel pride, when others see us, but this was so strong in Ukraine compared to other countries that I've worked in. This desire to be seen. And people would, would grasp onto some little, you know, children's Olympiad that some Ukrainian pupils had won. The sense of not being seen by the world. And of course, this is a through line in so much of Ukrainian literature. In Zabushko and Andrukhovich, this sense that, uh, you know, you're part of this old country as an idea, but a, quite a new country as a state. And people keep on asking you, well, well Ukraine, where's that? That's just a part of Russia? That's just the dialects of Russian? And that has continued for, for two decades. Finally, Ukraine is seen. I don't think we have any problems anymore of Ukraine not being seen. But now I realize when these people that we talked to in Ukraine talked about the need to be seen, it wasn't just an identity issue. It had to do with security. If you're seen, you might be saved. Now, there's lots of things being done at the military level, at the government level, to try to help Ukraine. But everybody here listening today, I think, wants to help in very practical ways. Obviously, you know, the proceeds from this event will go to the Pirogov hospital that Andre told us about, and maybe Andre can tell us more about it. But also where I get so many messages every day from people asking me how they can help. But are there any specific things, Luba, James, that you think the sort of people who will be listening and tuning in today should direct their energies and goodwill towards? But Andre, why don't you tell us first about the Pirogov Hospital? Well, I mean, uh, Pirogov Mobile Hospital is, in fact, uh, not a hospital. It is an NGO that was created in 2014 and uh, since then was very active also in Donbass, but now everywhere in Ukraine. Uh, they are training uh, medical emergency, military emergency nurses and uh, doctors. They are organizing now, for example, delivery of uh, food to Irpeny, which is uh, under Russian control, but uh, the locals are still in their homes and they don't have access to food. And the bridge from Irpeny to the other side towards Kiev is destroyed. So actually, a couple of days ago, the volunteers from this NGO created uh, a cable, uh, if you can say so, a cable road, sort of a cable over the river. And by cable, they are sending food supplies and the volunteers on other sides pick them up and uh, bring them to the people uh, who are blocked uh, in this town. They are still training, uh, actually, also uh, volunteers and uh, soldiers to give first medical aid on the battlefield. They are, they are helping, of course, with the medicine and uh, trying to be useful uh, whenever the, there is a need to do something. So it's uh, an organization with uh, 
100% positive reputation and that is why I recommended this NGO to be the on the receiving end of, of the financial aid assembled here. And you, but what about, what about you? You mentioned your husband and the need for just like first aid by the sounds of things. Are there any, apart from Pirogov, are there any charities or NGOs or institutions that you think people should prioritize their assistance to? I could recommend you uh, Vostok Sos. It's an organization with, which came from Lugansk and uh, uh, they uh, helped lots of people. Uh, even my family, my parents, my sister, and uh, I know um, they um, they have done a lot of things. It's like uh, help to refugees, help uh, with defense things like bulletproofs uh, for for Ukrainian soldiers, and um, also. Uh, and, and so on. They um, did a lot, and uh, I could recommend uh, just Vostok Sauce. Uh, they are they are my friends. And uh, if you are talking about me and my husband, it's just a couple uh, who did something, and now I need uh, to to buy uh, twenty walkie talkies in Warsaw. It costs about one hundred pounds. Oh, not 100, 1,000 pounds, I guess. And we also try and find this money now. Okay, so just for, for anyone who didn't hear, because the line's crackling, Vostok, SOS, Vostok SOS is the, the NGO. Vostok SOS, yeah. And, and, and maybe we can think about these, these walkie-talkies as well. James? I'm so bad at, uh, at ever getting organised in, in terms of, aid and, and, and help and well, let but, me, let me, I mean, I'm, I'm very sorry uh, yeah I'm, I'm very persuaded by the argument that as good as it is for people in for example London to feel good about doing something if they turn up at somewhere at, at some center and, and hand over old clothes or spare medicines they might have lying around um, I do feel I'm persuaded by the argument that to gather together things and try and put them on a van and shift them all the way over to Ukraine and then clog up the border um, trying to push these random things over into Ukraine is so much worse and less efficient than simply giving money to the right organizations like Vostok, SOS. And you know what a great example Ukraine has shown to the world. And what an extraordinary thing it is that Putin, having made this catastrophic mistake in 2014, believing that Ukraine was just going to collapse like a house of cards, could have made exactly the same mistake eight years later. He did not count on the existence, never mind the strength, of Ukrainian civil society. All these bodies of, of incredibly diverse volunteers who pulled together to fight, but also to take medicines and, and in some cases, um, military supplies, even weapons to the front. Um, so this is happening again. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that, that there is this support for um, Ukrainian refugees in Britain against the, uh, the efforts of our own government. Um, and, and there are these sort of familiar channels that swing into action, the familiar NGOs that we know and the, uh, the various government agencies. But uh, I think what Ukraine needs right now is money directed to practical um, and strong local 
Ukrainian volunteer groups who are um, who are able to channel channel it most effectively where it's where it's needed. Uh, and and I think that's that's the that's the thing getting the kind of the desire to help matched with um, with efficiency and practicality. Um, like like the, the the people who are hoping to go over and fight for the Ukrainians. I mean that's great, but if you don't speak if you don't speak Russian or Ukrainian and you don't have any military experience, um, there is that danger that you might end up being more harm than good. And uh, you know these same people might be better off uh, staying at home and uh, and helping raise money. Well, I suppose I'll finish on this. We're almost out of time. I actually wanted to ask you, James, what you thought the responsibility of the literary classes were in this conflict, but Maybe that's a separate discussion we should have at the LRB because I think there's much more that we could be doing, even in terms of what we can do in that in that space. But it's actually what we know of the Kremlin's clearly very faulty polling that informed their invasion. And again, look, you know, there's a lot of stuff being thrown about, but there was a good, interesting summary of of it in Rusi and the military think tank in London and um, the FSB's polling of Ukraine. And the reason they thought this would be an easy invasion was that trust in institutions is low, as it always is in Ukraine, like many post-colonial countries. People don't trust the state because the state was always an oppressor. But civil society trust was very high. Horizontal connections were very high. And the Kremlin does seem to know this. And that's why there are kill lists. That's why the Kremlin will follow the model, if it can, that it, that it used in Eastern Europe in the 1940s. And the people in the kill lists aren't just local police or local Ukrainian military. They're writers, they're civil society activists. They know who matters. And those people, many of whom are our friends, will be first against the wall. Thank you very much for coming. And um, thank you. I really mean it. Thank you very much for your help. And Andrei, Uber, James, thanks to you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.